0: This morning we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and we continue our reading this morning from John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, and Bernie's going to come and read that for us.
1: Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is has come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they intended, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not joined them, had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, They got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus.
0: Thank you, Bernie. Uh, Let's pray. Father God, open our eyes this morning so that we might see the real Jesus. Help us to know who he is, what he stands for, what he came to do, and most of all, how that impacts us. Lord, would you grow us, transform and change us by bringing us to a right knowledge of who this Jesus is. And we ask that for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, this morning we're coming to take a look at these, these two little episodes, these two miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water they're pretty famous stories you've heard them you'd probably got taught them in sunday school if you went to sunday school you've heard them lots i suspect that even if you're someone who's here this morning and you're not really familiar with christian things church is new to you i i think there's a good chance that you have heard these stories about jesus Uh, The first one of them, the feeding of the 5,000, is is one of the only events, aside from Jesus' death and resurrection, that gets included in all four of the gospel accounts. They don't all tell you that Jesus was born, although it is kind of implied. They don't all tell you that Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, but all Matthew, Mark, Luke and John tell you that Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Why is that? Why do we need to know these stories? Well, John tells us exactly why. Have a look at verse 14. John calls this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, a sign. He says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed. And right near the end of his gospel, it's on the screen here in chapter 20, John says something very important about Jesus' signs. He says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, i.e. the signs that John has told us about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs are here so that we might know who Jesus really is. The signs are here to point to Jesus' true identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is so important because it is only when you truly know who Jesus is that you can truly live. It's only by believing that you can have a life in his name, which means that your life depends on this. Just put that in perspective. The measure of your life, the thing by which your life can be determined a success or a failure, is not how many people attend your funeral. It's not how many years people remember your name. It is not how much you leave for your children. The measure of your life, the thing by which your life will be determined, is whether you did or did not know the real Jesus. Friends, we have to get this right. So who is Jesus? Let's take a look at these signs. Well, the first four verses of chapter 6, they set the scene for us. It is sometime after... the the healing of the disabled man in Jerusalem that we read about in chapter 5. We're in a different place. We've moved from Jerusalem in the south to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the north. There's a huge crowd of people chasing Jesus around because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And in verse 4, John tells us that it was nearly time for Passover. And that's important. Now, Passover was the festival where Jewish people celebrated their rescue from slavery in Egypt under Moses. It was a huge deal for the Jews. It still is today for Jewish people. It was essentially the birth of their nation and it captured the attention of Jewish people in a way that nothing else did. In that way, Passover was a bit like the footy finals Every year it happens in September where a team makes the finals and all of a sudden they have supporters that they didn't have before. They didn't look like supporters before, but then, well, now they are. But you see, you know the guy, don't you? I'm the guy. He hasn't watched a game all year. He can't name a single player in the team. But when his team makes the semis, now he's wearing the team kit. He's painting his house in team colours. He's a supporter, right? Passover is a bit like that even the most unengaged Jew celebrated Passover. They could spend a whole year not going to the synagogue, not praying, not fasting, but at Passover time, even the least Jewish person became Jewish, loudly, proudly Jewish. Patriotic sentiment is running high and Jesus has a crowd of people coming to see what he might do next. Well, in verse 5, Jesus raises the issue. These people need to eat. They've walked for miles and miles to come and see him. They're going to be hungry. They need to eat. So Jesus turns to Philip and he asks him, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, John says Jesus was testing Philip. He had no intention of buying enough bread to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. But he asks Philip, and it's as if Jesus is standing there right in front of Philip, and he's saying, if only there was someone who could do the impossible. If only there was someone who, who had proven their ability to miraculously feed people before. Like someone who, you know, say, turned water into wine. Do you know someone like that, Philip? Can you think of how we might possibly feed all these people, Philip? The answer is staring Philip in the face. But instead, well, Philip goes and gets out the calculator and starts trying to do the sums. To Philip it seems impossible, and understandably so. I think we would all be a bit like Philip. It would take more than half a year's wages just for everyone to have a bite, let alone a meal. But Philip has forgotten who Jesus is. Andrew doesn't do much better. I don't know if it's optimism or stupidity, but Andrew brings a boy with five small loaves and two small fish and says, this probably isn't enough, is it? And you're like, no, Andrew, it is not enough. It is not even close to enough. The ballpark is here and you are on a different continent. That, that, how could you be any less helpful? But it's all Jesus needs. You see, Philip is trying to do the maths on catering. Andrew brings enough food for a single child and Jesus transforms it. Just as he took water and he made it wine in chapter 2, here he takes five small loaves and two small fish and he transforms it. He multiplies it. Now, he could have done it with nothing. He could have just conjured up bread out of thin air if he wanted to. But instead, he chose to do the same thing that he continues to do for us today. He transforms You see, Jesus, who transformed a boy's lunch into a meal for thousands and thousands, friends, he's the same Jesus who takes the most humble of raw ingredients and makes them something glorious. Because, friends, he is the God who takes sinners and makes them his own, makes them saints. He takes the dead and he gives them life. Friends, Jesus is a transforming God. He takes you and me who have nothing to offer him, nothing that we can bring to him. We come to him with nothing but brokenness and sinfulness. And he takes us and he transforms us. Well, in verse 11, Jesus transforms Uh, Sorry, here he transforms bread into a meal for 5,000 men plus women plus children. And in verse 11, we're told that he gives these people, this crowd, as much as they wanted. Not only that, he then sends his disciples around with, with doggy bags to collect all the leftovers and they bring back more than what they started with. You see, this Jesus is not a a stingy provider, is he? He he didn't go around, you know, kind of watching, monitoring how much people were eating, saying, oh, too much, put some back. No, no, he didn't. He, He gave generously. He let people have as much as they could eat. He's generous like that. That's the way that he is. And he's like that towards us, isn't he? He's the one who lavishes us with his grace. He's not stingy. He blesses you with every spiritual blessing in Ephesians 1. He doesn't just offer you life, he offers you an eternal life, life to the full. He does not withhold anything good from those that he loves. There's the miracle. How do people respond? John shows us in verse 14. They recognize the miracle. They see the sign. They know something incredible has just occurred. And so they begin to say to each other, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is speaking to God's people and he tells them about a prophet. Who would one day come into the world? He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This is what Moses said to God's people way back in Deuteronomy. But ever since then, God's people, the Jews, have been looking forward, waiting, expecting. This prophet, this one like Moses, who would come and speak God's words, who would come and like Moses lead God's people. Remember, it's Passover time. Jewish nationalism is, is running high. The the expectations for the prophet are are growing. And after seeing Jesus feed a huge crowd with bread from heaven, just like Moses did with manna in the desert, all well, the people are convinced they have found the prophet. And they're right. 100%. Jesus is the prophet from God. He's the one who came to speak God's words because he is God. He is the one who came to lead God's people. For once, the crowds get Jesus right but they still get Jesus 100% wrong. You see, they rightly recognise Jesus as the prophet. But in verse 15, we're told that they intend to come and make him their king by force. And so Jesus removes himself from that situation. You see, here's the problem. They had recognised something true about Jesus. But then they went and started creating a Jesus of their own invention, of their own desire. What they really wanted was a Jesus who would lead them in victory over the Romans. They they wanted a Jesus who would free them from human oppressors. They wanted a patriotic Jesus, a rebellion-leading Jesus. And they wanted him so bad that they were willing to make him their king, whether he liked it or not. There was a movie a few years ago called Talladega Nights. I do not recommend you watch it. It is not a good movie. But stars Will Ferrell. He plays the role of uh, a NASCAR driver named Ricky Bobby. It, it's not a good movie. Don't go watch it. But uh, in it, there's a scene where Will Ferrell's character is praying. He's saying grace before dinner. And he, he addresses his prayer to eight-pound, three-ounce baby Jesus because he says he likes the Christmas Jesus the best. Starts a bit of an argument at the dinner table. Someone else says that they like to picture Jesus wearing a tuxedo T-shirt, because they want him to be formal, but they also want him to like to party. Someone else says they like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. But in the end, Ricky Bobby gets his way, because it's my grace, he says, and so I'll pray to whichever Jesus I want. It's a stupid example, but it can be so easy for us to do the same thing and to create our own version of Jesus just the way that we like him. Now, most people do it in more subtle ways. I don't think any of you would want Jesus to be a ninja fighting samurai, but there's always an element of truth to our creations. Now, we actually see this playing out right now in in the church. We see it right now in the Church of England. I prayed for it before, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, he knows that Jesus is a loving God. And so he likes to think that Jesus would bless same-sex unions because love is love. But he's wrong. But friends, we can do the same. We, We can take a truth about Jesus we can take the truth that Jesus wants to give us life to the full and then we, we reinterpret that, we shape it, we mould Jesus into the kind of king, the kind of God that we like. We make him the Jesus who, whose plans for our lives involve our wealth and our happiness and our health. But you see, we get Jesus wrong. Now, it's really easy for us to do. We take something that is true, and so it looks sort of resembling Jesus, but then we shape him, we mold him, we transform him into the Jesus that we like. Now, how do we guard against that? How do we keep ourselves from falling into this trap of creating the Jesus that we want? We need to get to know the Jesus that we need. In verses 16 to 24 show us the Jesus that we need. The crowds try to make Jesus king. Jesus runs away. And so as evening falls, the disciples, they decide to make their own way back across the sea. And in verse 18, they encounter a storm. It says the wind blew, the waters grew rough. They are straining against the oars as they desperately try to make their way through the storm back to shore. Now, something we need to understand is that Jews and and lots of other ancient cultures, they thought very differently about the ocean to what most of us do here on the Sunshine Coast. You see, for us, the sea is our playground, Right? The sea is for swimming and snorkeling and surfing and fishing and boating. We spend our weekends enjoying the ocean. It's relaxing. We love it. That's not how Jewish people thought about the ocean. In Jewish thought, the ocean is the epitome of chaos. The ocean is dark. It is menacing. It is dangerous. It cannot be controlled. Read through the Old Testament and you'll see references to the ocean and it's always this this uncontrollable realm, this dark, scary, dangerous place. You go to Genesis 1 and it says that before God did the work of creating, it says the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, it's a word for ocean, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The best way the author can describe existence that that God has not created and brought into order is using the image of the sea. It is chaotic. It is unformed. Here in John 6, it is in this chaos, through the darkness and the danger, through the uncontrollable forces of nature, that Jesus comes towards his disciples walking on the water. not, Not fighting against the water, not struggling against the waves, not worried about what these waves and the storm might do to him, just walking. The disciples are scared, not not of the storm. These are experienced fishermen, many of them. They're they're not worried about the, the wind and the waves. They're scared because they can see Jesus walking on the water. I mean, I think I would be too. And then Jesus speaks to them. He says to them in verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, it's a pretty straightforward statement. It's me, don't worry. But in these words, we we, we get a hint, just a little glimpse of a truth that will become clearer and clearer as John's Gospel unfolds. Because the words translated, it is I, in our English Bibles, they're they're two Greek words. Ego, the the word for I, it's where we get our word ego, and the word amy, which is the verb for, for being. And so while... It is I is exactly what Jesus means. It's me. It's Jesus, your friend. Another way that these two Greek words could be translated and another way that Jesus himself uses them in John chapter 8 is I am. If you know your Bibles, you'll know that's a pretty significant phrase. I am. Because I am is how God answers Moses from the burning bush when Moses asks him his name Moses asks God who are you what shall i tell people what is your name and God says i am it's his way of identifying himself Yahweh or Jehovah they're the hebrew forms of i am God doesn't begin he doesn't end he just is Life and existence comes from him. He is, I am. And here in the storm, on the sea, what is it that can drive away the disciples' fear? It's not just knowing that Jesus, their friend, is with them. That might be a comfort. But it's knowing that this Jesus is none other than the great I am. It is God himself walking through the stormy chaotic darkness to his friends and so what do they do in verse 21 i really love this they let him in the boat (laughs) which implies that they were considering not letting him in the boat (laughs) but they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading now just bring this all together The signs in John's Gospel, they're here to show us the real Jesus. They're here so that by believing in the real Jesus, you and I might have life in his name. And so friends, if you want to live, if you want to truly live, you do not need a Jesus that you invent for yourself. You need this Jesus. You need the Jesus who is in control over the stormy chaos. Now, we we, we can't miss the fact that this is not a metaphor. (laughs) Jesus walked on water in a real storm. It is real. This happened. Not a metaphor. But I want you to indulge the metaphor for a moment. Because we do talk about storms in our lives, don't we? You know, times of difficulty, times of suffering, times of chaos, times where you feel like you can't keep your head above the water. We use this language of water and chaos and storms to describe situations in our life. And there will be storms in your life, storms caused by your own sin and disobedience. You screw up and you have to live with the consequences. There's a storm. Notice in in this situation... uh, The storm the disciples faced is a storm caused not by disobedience, but by obedience. They they did exactly what Jesus said, or at least this is what the other gospel accounts tell us. And they still get the storm. Storms will come for you, whether you obey Jesus or not. Storms will come. What is it that will keep you from drowning? It's knowing that Jesus is god he is the one with life in himself he is the one who is able to overcome all sin all darkness all chaos all death he is the king like no other and so the implication for us is let him in the boat Don't just look at Jesus from a distance. Don't just know that Jesus is God. Let him in the boat. Let him take the wheel. Let him bring you to your destination. Let him lead you to life in his name. Friends, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for these signs that you have revealed to us through John's Gospel. These signs that we can read about so that we may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that by believing in this Jesus, we may have life in his name. Father, we thank you for these signs of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water that show us that Jesus is the prophet, the one who comes to speak God's words and to lead God's people. We thank you that in these signs, we see that Jesus is one with you, that Jesus is divine. He is God. He is the one who is in control over nature itself. Lord, we pray that you would help us know this Jesus because it is so easy for us to invent a Jesus for ourselves, to take take one element, one truth about Jesus and and then mold him and form him into the Jesus that we like. But Father, show us the Jesus that we need. Show us the Jesus with all authority in heaven and on earth. Show us the Jesus who offers us life Lord, help us to give our lives to this Jesus. We pray that you would help us to be people who let Jesus in, who let him take control, who let him direct the course of our lives. May we be people who live for Jesus, the Son of God, because we know that it is only through trust in him that we will live. May this be true in our lives, we pray, for our good, and for the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen.